This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. There's a hilltop at the heart of Jerusalem known to Jews and Christians as the Temple Mount and to Muslims as the Noble Sanctuary. It is the site of the first and second holy temples described in the Bible, which later became a site for Islamic worship as well. The Al-Aqsa Mosque compound on the Temple Mount has lately been the site of Muslim rioting during the month-long religious holiday of Ramadan. How did a holiday dedicated to fasting, prayer, and charitable giving become a time of violence, and not just in Jerusalem alone? Recent years have seen Ramadan attacks in countries as distant as France and Syria, Tunisia, Afghanistan, Kuwait, and Somalia. Nevertheless, despite the widespread experience of Ramadan violence, there is something unique about violence on the Temple Mount, a location that some have called Ground Zero. Hello, and welcome to the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, and I'm honored to be talking with today's guest, Ambassador Dory Gold, who will share his insight into the dangerous dynamic of Ramadan violence in general and violence on the Temple Mount in particular. Who incites it? Who benefits from it? And how can it best be countered? Ambassador Dory Gold is the president of the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. He's had a long career in public service and in scholarship. Among his many articles and books are The Rise of the Nuclear Iran, How Iran Defies the West, and The Tower of Babel, How the United Nations Has Fueled Global Chaos. Dory Gold, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Renee. It's really good to be with you. Let's start with the basics so all our listeners can be on the same page. Why is Ramadan a high-risk time for violent attacks in many parts of the world? Well, in fact, it shouldn't be. Um, There has been a history of violence on Ramadan in recent years, but um, it's not as though Islamic law calls for an escalation of violence in this period of time. But um, uh, there has been an effort by those who wish to um, uh, promote escalation to use Ramadan as as a war cry to get to mobilize the forces, to mobilize people and um, there's really no basis in Islamic theology for doing that. Well, that's important to know because I I think there's some confusion about whether uh, Ramadan has always historically been a time for jihad, violent uh, struggle or aggression. 
but so it's important to know that it's not mainstream and it's not historically verified, but rather a modern politically used tool. Uh, that's helpful. Well, well, what, well, what we can point out is that there were significant um, Muslim victories when Islam was just getting underway uh, at the time of Ramadan. Take, for example, Muslims all know about the Battle of Badr. That was the first battle between Muslims and the residents of Mecca on the 19th of Ramadan in the year 624. So it was a tremendous victory for Muhammad, and therefore it's commemorated. But, you know, that's a coincidence. That's not a... um, a religious plan. The conquest of Mecca by Muhammad and his armies occurred on the 20th of Ramadan, about nine years later in the year 632. And so uh, Ramadan is associated with being a time for victory by Muslim armies. Some have called it a month of jihad. But you know, it's not as though in their religious tradition you must wage war on Ramadan. Okay, that's important for us to keep in mind as we move the conversation to uh, the unique Temple Mount circumstances. As I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the Jordanian Religious Trust, the WAF, is the spiritual and civil authority of the noble sanctuary. So what I don't understand is, is aren't they therefore responsible to prevent weapons being stored in mosques up there? Uh, we would expect that of any religious leader, of any house of worship, anywhere in the world. So why shouldn't the Wach be held responsible for preventing the stockpiling of weapons in Al-Aqsa. You know, you are 100% correct. And in fact, a number of years ago, the idea was put forward that we should have uh, cameras on the Temple Mount to see who exactly is smuggling weapons into the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Let's get them red-handed. That was the idea. And it seemed like a, uh, a smart move. Now, both the Waqf and, for that matter, the Jordanians, who uh, give sponsorship to the Waqf, oppose this idea. I'll tell you a story. You know, I was the director general of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the State of Israel. And we decided uh, at one point to have a delegation go to Abu Dhabi for reasons having nothing to do with, with the subject we're speaking about. And uh, one of the things you do when you go to Abu Dhabi is you go visit the Sheikh Zayed Mosque, one of the most beautiful mosques in the Muslim world. So we go into the mosque. By the way, there is no problem with Dory Gold wearing a kippah walking into the Sheikh Zayed Mosque because the UAE believes in universalism. And that would just be an expression of a universalist uh, Uh, position. So I walk in with my foreign ministry team into the Sheikh Zayed Mosque, and I look up, and what do I see in the ceiling of the Sheikh Zayed Mosque? 
I see cameras. In other words, the very cameras that we wanted to put into the Al-Aqsa Mosque and everyone made a big deal about were in the Sheikh Zayed Mosque. And nobody had uh, opposed it. I went back to my room in the hotel. I actually looked up, well, what's the story in the great mosque in Mecca, in Saudi Arabia? Because, you know, in Google, you can also Google pictures and movies. And I Googled and I saw the uh, cameras and, uh, and what types of equipment they had installed in the great mosque in Mecca. So... Uh, cameras were okay for the Great Mosque in Mecca. Cameras were okay for the Sheikh Zayed Mosque. But for some reason, those responsible on the Muslim side for uh, security felt inhibited about authorizing cameras in the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And I think that was just an invitation to disaster uh, in subsequent years. Do you have a sense of why they refused cameras? Because, I mean, in our world, cameras are everywhere. They're ubiquitous. Uh, of course. So do you, you, know, did I you don't know. It? I would have to make up. I would have to make up motivation that I can't prove. And I don't like do, doing things like that. So let's just okay, leave well, it a mystery. And let's have, you know, somebody at the University of Massachusetts do a dissertation <laughs> on that subject. <laughs> Yes, because uh, I'm a psychologist by training, so uh, we we make up hypotheses about what people uh, are thinking. And I'll admit to you that it often seems that the Muslim community, at least uh, in Jerusalem and maybe everywhere, suffers from paranoia. Uh, every time I hear the call to save Al-Aqsa, now granted it's often coming from uh, terrorist groups like uh, Hamas, but it's widely accepted despite complete absence of any evidence that it's under attack. So do you think that the Muslim community is paranoid, delusional, or is the widespread belief that they have to protect Al-Aqsa from probably Israeli, but from any kind of attack, is the result of some deliberate, intentional misinformation that gets spread in the community. And if that's the case, where does it come from and who benefits? Well, the man who I, I would call him the uh, religious leader of that kind of concern is a gentleman by the name of Sheikh Raid Salah, who heads the northern branch of the Islamic movement in Israel. Now, the Islamic movement in Israel is really a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. And Israel has let him operate freely, and he has been um, one of the great copywriters of incitement that we've had to deal with. We've actually imprisoned him for incitement at different times. But um, he is a lot of trouble. When I was in government first, between 96 and 98, uh, I had to deal with the after effects of Sheikh Raid Salah, what he did. And, for example, one of his ideas 
was to go up to the Temple Mount and clean out the cisterns. There are cisterns that hold, they're, they're intended to hold water. Clean out the cisterns on the Temple Mount and bring water to the Temple Mount from the holy well of the Zamzam Spring in Mecca. So you have to have some kind of like oil transporters. You fill it with Zamzam water and you drive over the Saudi-Jordanian border. You come to Jerusalem and that is that was the plan. Now, um, it was interesting because it wasn't just our security forces whose uh, eyebrows shifted upward when they heard about the Zamzam plan. The Arabs themselves were concerned. What was this going to do? What were the net, net results of this? Um, another thing that Sheikh Raid Salah did is he sponsored rallies. You know, um, he lived in the Galilee, and they had these mass rallies, and they had these huge um, placards up at the rallies in Arabic saying, Al-Aqsa is in danger. So he was really, you know, um, how would I put this, uh, fanning the flames of uh, Muslim concerns that the Jews were going to take over Al-Aqsa and kick them out. No one had planned that. No one had talked about that. But it was a very dangerous uh, conspiracy to promote. And it took a lot of work on the part of Israel to quell that concern. And and he has followers, or there are other people doing the same thing this year, last year. Is that is that part of the of the system? It has somewhat uh, cooled off, but it's something I think we have to watch very carefully. Freedom of religion and freedom of expression are fundamental to Israeli democracy, and we have to protect that. But we're also working in a context where religious incitement is rampant in the Middle East, and uh, you have to reach some kind of balance so that you can keep Jerusalem open and free, and not uh, a, a city where there are uh, concerns of um, of uh, religious jihad and uh, things of that sort. And uh, that careful balance is something Israel has specialized in. Well, and speaking of religious freedom. That's another thing that uh, troubles me about this situation that is so well known, it's predicted in the news. It's Everybody knows that uh, the confluence of holidays, Ramadan, Passover, and Easter, was a volatile, instead of the most peaceful, the most transcendent devotional time is instead the, uh, or at the same time, the most dangerous time. But religious freedom is protected in in Israel, 
Um, it's problematic in all democracies. What are the limits of it? Uh, in the United States, the Supreme Court is dealing with the, just that issue right now. But as far as what we're talking about, it's clear that all religious sites in Israel, and there are many, they're all open to visitors of all religions who are free to come and stand and say a silent prayer uh, if that's what they wish to do, even if they're not a member of the particular religion. Only the Temple Mount is different, where there's a rule that if you're not Muslim, you can't pray. What, what, it, what is that? Why should that be the case? Well, first of all, that has evolved since 1967. It was Moshe Dayan, who was our defense minister in the Six-Day War, who set the rule that uh, Jews could visit the Temple Mount, but they couldn't pray on the Temple Mount. Well, just by uh, popular demand, Jews now go to the Temple Mount. They now pray on the Temple Mount, but not in obviously organized public prayers, but privately. And um, the rules have changed. And I think it's a good thing. You know, when we, I visit religious sites around the world. And one of my favorite places to go is Rome. Now, if you go to uh, St. Peter's Basilica, you will see people there of many different faiths. And um, St. Peter's is open to all religions. There may be certain Jewish limitations on going to a place like St. Peter's, but I went. In any event, um, it is extremely important that Israel, as a caretaker of the holy sites in Jerusalem, should follow the precedents around the world where there are religious sites that are free and open. We're democracies. And uh, that's what others are doing who are part of our international coalition of democracies, and that's what we should do. Um, I, I don't think we should force ourselves uh, down the throats of Muslims. To the contrary, we have to respect their religious sensitivities. But at the same time, a place like the Temple Mount should be open for all faiths. And frankly, I believe strongly as a former ambassador to the United Nations that only Israel can protect the freedom of religion for all the great faiths. We've done it in the past, and we'll do it in the future. But it's going to take a lot of expert diplomacy to make it work. Well, not only is Israel the only one who can do that, we know historically uh, others have been in charge, in, including Jordan, uh, from 1948, when they captured part of Jerusalem, uh, until 67, when Israel got it back. Uh, and uh, they did not allow <coughs> other religions to to practice uh, freely. Uh, or, uh, You're 100% correct. And that is why we should never, ever lose our nerve and give up the old city to anyone. 
Yes, and in in terms of of having people uh, of other faiths pray in in the location of another faith, certainly there are limitations. You can't take communion if you're not a Catholic, and uh, you um, you can't set up a, a, a Torah scroll and a table and a, a quorum and have a formal uh, a prayer service in the National Cathedral in Washington. Uh, and and you can't roll out your prayer rug there and, and, uh, and pray in the Muslim fashion either. We're talking about private prayer, being in a place where uh, an individual or a group might want to stop and praise God or give a blessing. And the idea that that would be threatening is... Uh, is quite extraordinary and goes back to the idea of seeing fear where there really isn't a threat. And um, now, the, these ideas do get spread through the mass media as well as within more private uh, ways of communicating. Uh, it's one thing for a religious leader to say incendiary things from the pulpit, that's a little harder to control in a democracy, uh, and perhaps we don't want to unless it's quite extreme. But what about the what about the media? What do you see as the role of the media, either in reducing tensions, which would be nice, or in fanning the flames? Well, the media have huge responsibility, and I believe that a person who uh, becomes a um, correspondent for the mass media where these kinds of threats exist. And they exist in a lot of different places. In India, um, in places where you have multiple religions that are supposed to coexist, there has to be almost like a code of conduct for um, representatives of the media. So they shouldn't become conduits for a whole mythology that um, somebody plans to destroy somebody else's religion. Uh, that's just not the way. There's also an awareness you have to have about the sensitivity of certain periods of time. You know, um, uh, we mentioned important events occurred um, which in the Muslim world are either commemorated or remembered, like I said, the Battle of Badr, uh, which was... Um, before the conquest of Mecca by uh, the armies of Muhammad. So when you get close to times like that, you have to uh, behave with a certain sensitivity um, and also make sure that the Muslims feel reassured that their interests are protected. And I have no problem with that, to the contrary. Um, there are also uh, times and dates when great battles occurred in Islamic history, be aware of it. You know, don't don't stick your foot into a very uh, difficult period with um, um, you know uh, claims and um, demands of um, uh, of Islamic institutions. Um, you know, there is a the the time of Ramadan is also sensitive 
uh, for those Muslims who live in Spain, because that's when the beginning of the conquest of Al-Andalus occurred. And so um, be aware of it and educate yourselves. And don't just have a uh, send correspondence to sensitive areas in the Muslim world and have them run around like a bull in a china shop. It could create a lot of historical animosity. But I believe we can coexist. I have been having meetings with uh, uh, co-religious, not co-religious. I've have been having meetings with colleagues, Muslim colleagues from the Arab world, and we demonstrate understanding for each other. That's what has to happen, and I believe it can happen. And I think that's what we should be promoting. And and, and speaking of that, let's take a moment to widen the lens. We've been focused on the Temple Mount, on Jerusalem, on Israel, but Israel and the Temple Mount exist in a context, a regional context. Uh, Let's take a look at at how the Middle East as a region affects the violence. You're an expert on Saudi Arabia, uh, one of the major players in this area, uh, tell us about their influence and how it's changed over time. Well, you know, back in the early 1990s, I wrote a book on Saudi Arabia with a very provocative title called Hatred's Kingdom. And it came out in a couple of different languages. Um, I, as a result, although I wrote books on other subjects afterward, I kept monitoring what was going on in Saudi Arabia. And I can tell you this, a lot of the early commitment of the jihadi world to uh, religious war, to jihad, um, came about in the years uh, uh, 1998, 99, 2000, up till 2005. And then after 9-11, I think in Saudi Arabia, there was a rethink that occurred. And um, I noticed very important changes of policy that didn't get the proper coverage that uh, these changes should have received in the mass media. And I'll be very specific. When I wrote the book um, about Saudi Arabia, the um, Saudis were financing through these huge international charities anywhere up to 50, maybe even 70% of the budget of Hamas. Now, we had gone through the second intifada, the second uprising among the Palestinians, and we had lots of evidence of how the money was moving and why it was occurring. But the Saudis all of a sudden stopped supporting Hamas. And they stopped giving them large sums of of money. The money afterwards came from Iran, not from Saudi Arabia. And, um, you know, that is worth noting and giving them credit for, because that is a fundamental change of policy, which may make eventually uh, an understanding, even peace arrangements between Israel and Saudi Arabia possible. 
Well, that's very hopeful. Um, Not everything is pessimistic. That's really good to hear. <laughs> if, if one is like me and reads too many news sites, newspapers, pessimism is inevitable. So thank you for that. And as my final question, I'll give you a chance to be even more positive because uh, what I'd like to know is what would you like to see happen in the realms of politics, religion, or diplomacy, or anything else if you have something in mind, that would help bring stability and calm to this area? Well, right now, I see things in terms of geopolitics. And we have a... uh a rising danger in the East. It's called the Islamic Republic of Iran. And um, it is developing a a nuclear weapons program. And it says Israel should be wiped off the map. So we have to be very cognizant of what they're doing and take care to neutralize a program like that. Uh, I think it's possible that the states of the Middle East, particularly the Gulf states and Israel, can find common ground to work together, particularly to stop the Iranian threat. Iran doesn't have to be the inevitable enemy of Israel. Iran and Israel got along before and could get along again. But there has to be a fundamental change of behavior because along with the nuclear weapons program, Iran has been active in uh, promoting the spread of, um, of revolutionary organizations across the Middle East, from Morocco in the West all the way to Iraq in the East. And uh, these organizations threaten the stability of a wide variety of regimes, and they are a threat to Israel. So I think we have to work together with our Arab neighbors, particularly in the Gulf, and see if we can create a more stable region. The basis for doing that is there. And... What would make a big difference is if the United States and the European powers would work with us, would support such an effort, if we are undertaking it ourselves. Well, from your words to God's ear story, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today and for sharing your considerable expertise and experience with this very complicated subject. My pleasure. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Bye-bye.